Hey everyone, good evening, good morning, good afternoon, or whatever time of day you're listening. For me, it's Sunday, April 3rd, 2022. It's about 8.45 on the East Coast. I had planned on recording this episode in the morning. I get up pretty early before everyone else is awake in the house, and so it can provide a convenient time to get some work done or get a recording done. Um, but as Maggie reminded me, rightfully, it's always impossible to know what kind of night you're going to have when you have a three-year-old and a one-year-old in the house, and we've had some up and down nights lately. So instead of relying on uh, a decent night's sleep and a, a normal wake up in the morning, probably best that I um, put voice to mic tonight so that I can still join you on time this coming Wednesday. So by the time you listen to this, it will be Wednesday the 6th or later, four, five, six, yep, Wednesday the 6th, 2022, or after, depending on whenever you listen to this. So today's episode is a solo. Uh, I have some thoughts that I frankly uh, owed you and intended to share now three weeks ago, uh, before my life took a, a rather sharp turn. My, my family's life really took a sharp turn. So had to step back and deal with some things. I had in fact promised this episode to a couple of you out there. I had texted you ahead and said, hey, I'm recording tonight, would love to know your thoughts. And then um, some stuff went south uh, and then I never got to record. So tirade and Murph, this one's for you. And uh, to answer your other question, I don't think I ever answered. Uh, the answer is yes. And tonight's choice is Jameson on the rocks. There you go. Uh, another note for you. So related to this episode, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna mention probably a couple of times, uh, and certainly the content is connected. If you have not listened to last week's episode, season two, episode three, the interview with Cole Smith, please do so. Even if you are not a missileer, an Air Force veteran, military type person at all, uh, I think it's a valuable conversation. I certainly think it's valuable if you're listening in the U.S. Um, or certainly if you're listening and you have ties to Europe, if you are at all interested, curious, worried about the current Russia-Ukraine war and the current conflict in Eastern Europe, if you're at all curious about strategic weapons and what threat to the world they still may pose, strategic being a euphemism for nuclear, we'll talk about that here in a minute too. At any rate, um, it was a great conversation. I really appreciate Cole coming on. He only had about an hour to give me, so we could have covered a ton more, and hopefully he comes back on in the near future. Um, but he is a, a former missileer, veteran of the Air Force, spent seven years, I think, altogether. I'm sorry, five years altogether, plus uh, time at the Air Force Academy, uh, and is now a writer and film director. And so, but he wrote an article, he wrote an editorial that was published in The Guardian, uh, and I only found out about it after reading a letter from the executive director of the Association of Air Force Missileers uh, that, that stood to, I, I would say, refute some of the points or at least answer to them. And so on that note, uh, Jim Warner, the executive director of the Association of Air Force Missileers, uh, I am reaching out to on the off chance, sir, that you are listening to this. Just know I would love to have you on and I'm looking to have you on as soon as we can make it happen. Um, I'm certainly willing to flex to your schedule and, and would love to hear from you. If you hear this, I'm reaching out to you directly. So, so of course, worry not, uh, you'll hear from me so that you have my information. But um, the, the intent with having Cole Smith on last week was not, to, um, was not to give short shrift to the AAFM letter or to anyone who disagrees or wants to counter Cole Smith's article. In fact, Cole Smith himself has said multiple times, including on this podcast, that the purpose in writing his piece was to start a conversation. And, and he does have a point of view. He does in some ways make an argument, but he, I think in my opinion anyway, is, is remarkably gracious when presented with pushback. He wants the conversation to happen. And, and he has told me, um, it's been endearing to see and to encounter a number of people, veterans, friends of his, peers, uh, who have read the editorial or have uh, at least heard about it and are willing to engage. So the fact that it started this conversation is the point. 
Um, that's why I knew I had to have Cole on, and that's why I absolutely want to have Mr. Warner on. Uh, and I'm looking to have uh, a couple more people from the community. Well, I shouldn't say a couple more. Really as many as I can have from the community uh, over time, probably not in episodes that all fall in a row because there's other things I want to do, other questions I have and other people to talk with. But the, uh, the nuclear weapons, strategic deterrence, where do we stand now with the Russians and the Chinese and what does the world look like in the next 10 to 15 years is an important question. And you know, Cole made this point in the editorial and my peers and I have been making this point for several years. Um, it, it, it took Russia invading a sovereign country in Eastern Europe that itself borders, I think, four NATO allies for the citizenry at large to have a conversation about nuclear weapons. Um, that's not the citizenry's fault. It's ours. Um, and that's not to say we should have been doomsday every day about it, but uh, the reality is I think we took our eye off the ball because we deliberately chased a smaller ball and I'll, and I'll get into that also. So it's a solo episode. As you can tell, I still don't have intro music. I'm not doing a whole, a whole lot with these episodes. What, what's important I think is the conversation, is the questions, is the argument. And so, um, you know, if you don't like that, I'm sorry, but this is the show. And what I think matters the most is that we engage on stuff that matters. And uh, I will fancify these episodes up as time goes on, but uh, you know, I've got other things to do just like you do. So at any rate, today, it is a follow-on episode of sorts to the Cole Smith interview from last week. But today, what I wanna talk about is is something that applies certainly beyond nuclear weapons, but it's but I'm going to focus on um, something that I've thought a lot about, and that I especially thought a lot about after Russia invaded at the end of February, and after reading Cole's editorial and the response, and and really thinking deeply about what I used to do on active duty. Maybe maybe for the first time since I left active duty, I I thought on and off about it. You know, certainly there's there's pieces to it that I miss and there's people that I miss, but you know, I've been pretty well distracted by trying to figure out what it's like to live as a regular person for the past year or so. But, but I thought a lot about it uh, when I was on active duty. I thought a lot about it when I was um, a senior operator starting to teach others. And certainly when I was in Wyoming for three years as an instructor and really spending my whole time all day, every day, teaching, figuring out ways how to teach, and really thinking about one thing, how to make the squadron as capable as possible. Um, it, it occurred to me, you know, people who are in a role like that, uh, training, evaluating, assessments, writing procedures, right? Everyone in the ICBM, the greater nuclear weapons complex, that includes the flying type, the submarine type and the land-based missile type, all three legs of the triad, right? All of us are steeped in, you know, some, some amount of deterrence theory, arguably very rudimentary, um, but we talk about deterrence theory. We talk about capability times will. You have to be capable of putting these weapons on target. You have to be willing to do it. And that's what equals a deterrent effect, right? That's what prevents an adversary from launching theirs against us or for potentially threatening allies, i.e. NATO allies, as a prime example. Um, so it's very easy to get caught up in, in that, in combat capability, maximizing capability, maximizing lethality, whatever it is we do, it's going to make us the absolute sharpest sword we can be so that if, God forbid, the president and the country call upon us, we're ready and it happens. And we, and we make the magic happen that we know how to make happen. Um, you know, one of the phrases I, I tried to use often to really put things into perspective for, for folks who worked around me and for friends of mine in my assignments was, you know, the, the ICBM in particular, this leg of the triad was not designed to fight Osama bin Laden and non-state actors. It's not even designed to fight what we would think of as a tactical fight, right? 
we don't fight wars in uh, a strategic weapon system like the ICBM. We prevent them and we end them. And that was really one of the mantras that I always repeated to myself often, we prevent wars and we end wars. And really that space in between is where most of the military I think sits. And so because of that, it creates this strange dynamic where, you know, and, and I saw this among my peers and then we saw this for, for many years after. So rewind the clock in your head, if you will, to 2008. Um, I'm entering active duty. We've been in Iraq five years, in Afghanistan, close to seven. And whatever the merits of both operations and whatever you think we did well and did not do well, the reality was we were expending, I, I won't say all of our resources, we were expending a lot in terms of resource manpower, money, hardware, software, right? All the things that go along with prosecuting a war of some type. We were expending a lot in Iraq and Afghanistan, arguably not enough in Afghanistan, plenty in Iraq, but in, in either, no matter how you shake it and no matter how you wanna make the argument, we had a lot of attention on the Middle East. And so as a result, as an Air Force, certainly, and I saw a little bit of this firsthand just by virtue of the assignments I had, um, our aviators, our maintainers, our military policemen, many of the airmen who deployed, most of the airmen who deployed, deployed in support of these operations, right? We saw Libya happen in 2011. We're rotating back and forth to Iraq and Afghanistan. We're still sending personnel to Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, parts of Africa. We have exchange programs with the Australians, with the Brits. We have people stationed permanently overseas all over the world, Japan, Western Europe, the UK. Um, but the focus, of course, is on F Iraq and Afghanistan. So much so that in the 2012 election cycle, right, between Barack Obama and Mitt Romney, Mitt Romney is derided when in a debate he is asked, who do you think America's number one geopolitical foe Foe is FOE. And I'm and I'm paraphrasing. I, I don't remember the question verbatim, but I know I remember enough of the gist of the exchange. Who do you think America's number one geopolitical foe is? Mitt Romney, Mitt Romney says Russia. And Barack Obama quips, um, the 1980s called and they want their foreign policy back. In 2012, the, you know, the joke lands pretty well. Mitt Romney was derided, <clears throat> certainly by his political um, adversaries, if you will, for, for various other reasons. Uh, his candidacy, of course, didn't make it. He didn't win 2012, and Barack Obama was reelected to the White House. But if you fast forward, it, even if you look at the progression of U.S.-Russian relations since the 90s, since Vladimir Putin rose to power, I think in 2001, after Boris Yeltsin dies, as you look at the progression of U.S.-Russian relations, they weren't necessarily ever good. But if you wonder why we didn't talk about it much, what was happening between 2001 and now? Between 2001 and our rather public withdrawal from Afghanistan in August of 2021, for 20 years, almost to the month, we were mired in Afghanistan and Iraq. Right? We, were, we were distracted and we were trying to focus on enduring freedom, Iraqi freedom, and all the follow-on operations there. And so for airmen entering the Air Force, when I did, let's say, in 2008, that's the focus. So, so for people who wanted combat experience and who wanted to deploy and who wanted to be part of the fight, certainly 9-11 was a motivating uh, episode in our history. So that's understandable. But where are we getting our combat experience and our knowledge and our, and our corporate knowledge? We're building all of these lessons in those fighting environments, in those battle spaces, Iraq, Afghanistan, Southwest Asia more generally, right? For better or worse, that's, that's the reality of it. That's where our focus is. In the meantime, a very small subset of the Air Force, of the officer corps, is entering into, and the enlisted corps, actually. So in, in the maintenance world, security world, 
in our with our mission support brothers and sisters and in the operations world where the young lieutenants land the the majority or i should say a very very small minority excuse me of airmen are landing in assignments like minot malmstrom francis e warren at a mission that that certainly enables operations like in iraq and afghanistan but we're also somewhat disconnected from Iraq and Afghanistan. Like I said, I'm the first to admit, we are not there to worry about Osama bin Laden or Abu Musab al-Zarqawi or any of these other names that we became used to listening to and hearing about on the news. That's not what we're there for. That's not what these weapons were built for. And to this day, post-Cold War, that's not what these weapons are for. These weapons may provide top cover for tactical maneuvering around the world. But what they're really for is preventing the type of war we saw explode unto the world, literally unto the world, in 1941-42. 39, if you count the invasion of Poland, right? But by the time we reached Pearl Harbor in 1941, right, the U.S. was fighting now on two fronts, and we were fighting the Japanese really solo, right? We had to because of where Western, where the Western European allies were uh, in, in 41. So that's what these weapons were designed for. Many people who built the weapon system, who built the ICBM system, the Minuteman system that we know today and that we still have today, didn't expect the weapon system to make it even 10, 15 years, right? We, a lot of people thought we would end up launching these things which is why you see so many degradations and so much effort put into trying to extend the life of the hardware and the software. It wasn't supposed to last this long. It is in fact a miracle of 1960s technology that it has. They were incredibly well engineered. And, and if you are a missileer, and frankly, if you're a missileer right now, you know, at the present day, pulling alert, first of all, thank you genuinely for what you do, because it is oftentimes a thankless job. Right now it's Sunday night, the clock just struck, it's nine o'clock on the East Coast. And we have missileers deployed right now, 80, 90, 100 feet underground, depending on where you are. It's April, so it might be snowing in Minot, who knows, right? It's probably gonna snow next month, I'm sorry, knock on wood, but let's be real, until Mother's Day, you're not safe, okay. But seriously, we've been out there. We've been on alert with a nuclear weapon nonstop since 1959. But the Minuteman system, first deployed in 62 with Minuteman 1, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, by the way, was incredibly well engineered. If this sucker is still around and turned on in 2022. Okay, so, so, that's, so that's really a side note. But the point is, it's very difficult to bring a crew member into a world where nobody's paying attention. The Air Force was not paying attention. In fact, it, it became very public in 2007 that the Air Force was not paying attention. If you remember a chief of staff of the Air Force, a four star and a secretary of the Air Force, a senior civilian fired because we left a rotary launcher full of air launch cruise missiles on an unguarded runway for, or an unguarded uh, flight line in a parking area for something like 24 hours. So we had a lot of issues culturally at the time because of all the things the country is worried about, nuclear weapons, deterrence, the Russians, the Chinese, the Koreans, right? The, the big name players in the nuclear community, if you will, we weren't thinking about it. We weren't worrying about it. Somebody somewhere was worrying about it, but as a country, in terms of the discourse, we weren't focused on it, which makes for a very difficult training environment and a very difficult motivating environment. Um, I'm kind of off onto a tangent I wasn't planning on, but hey, this is this is often what happens in these solo episodes. Um, but I'm but I'm getting to a I'm getting to a point here. I I chose the job. I worked with plenty of people good people, solid officers who didn't. And the joke always was, did, did you choose missiles or did missiles choose you? And I remember back in the day, back when 
back when I was a young missileer. Most of the answers I remember were, oh, missiles chose me. I washed out of pilot training. I uh, didn't do well enough to get ranked high enough in my, it was number six on my dream sheet because I wanted to go to Schriever and fly satellites. And then they had no Schriever slots. And on and on the story goes. Which is not to say we didn't have tons of good people at the missile wings, but the reality was we were the Af Air Force's afterthought. Despite being a, a critical piece to the Cold War puzzle for decades, in a world where you're fighting in largely permissive environments, where Iraq and Afghanistan become insurgencies, become a, a, a combination of State Department intelligence operations, urban combat, um, counterinsurgency, hearts and minds, you know, trying to use precision guided munitions, realizing collateral damage is, is almost guaranteed because of the types of areas we're going into. Just such a different world and a different battle space from what we were talking about and planning for in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Okay, it's a, it's, a, it's a different, it's just totally different, right? And so the Air Force is focused on that. The military is focused on that. And here we are in the Northern tier in the Western US deploying to take care of these weapons that are still very real, very usable, but they are not designed for the global war on terror. They are designed to prevent something far worse, frankly, than 9-11. And, and if that bothers you to hear me say it, I need you to read something about what we thought would happen during the Cold War and what could still physically happen, right, if, if we were to use strategic nuclear weapons in combat. The eventualities are worse than 9-11. They're worse than 10 9-11s. That's what these weapons are designed to guard against. So it's difficult, though, to get someone to see that, right? To get someone to understand that when their friends are gearing up to go to Iraq and Afghanistan, that's where the quote unquote action is. And for many people, my generation included, 9 11 was the motivating force. I was a junior in high school. It was Tuesday morning. Right, I was in US history class when our vice principal walks in to tell us that a plane had crashed into the tower. And all of us, right, like millions of people assumed it was, it was some guy in a Cessna. And holy God, that sounds awful, but okay, it's an accident. Cessna's not going to bring the building down. Then the second one hits, and then almost everyone is glued to a television for the better part of an afternoon, and then school closes, and then so ensues the next 20 years. 9-11 was a huge driving force, so I'm not going to discount that, and I, and I certainly don't want to discount the thousands of lives we lost, the hundreds of thousands or the tens of thousands of lives lost in Iraq and Afghanistan and the adjoining countries, all of the lives displaced, all of the refugees, right? There's a whole lot of effort that went into Iraq and Afghanistan that we cannot forget and shouldn't ignore. But what I think is also the case is the military largely ignored a whole other strain or a whole other sliver of reality that came back and bit us in the ass February of 2022. And so was there somebody somewhere in the Pentagon and were there people around the world in the military establishment thinking about it? Yeah, there were. But it is also our responsibility, I think, to help the citizenry have a productive conversation about these weapons and the threats that are out there and, and why GBSD may be or may not be an appropriate investment. I do think GBSD is appropriate and necessary, not because I want nuclear weapons to be around forever, but precisely because I know they will be around for probably the next 30 years, and Minuteman cannot cut the mustard for that long. It just cannot. 
And if and if you as a taxpaying citizen don't know why that is, that is not your fault. It's mine. And it's the Air Force's, it's Congress's, of course. It is not your fault. Okay, so that was another digression, but it's it's tough to motivate, right? So I remember in 2014, when I finally have a chance to, to do something with a training program and to build what I think is the answer. You know, what I remember thinking of, of all the failures of how we used to train, one of them was really neutering the decision-making capacity and authority of the officers, of the young lieutenants, and really everyone on the map, but particularly our crew members, who at one point had to call through two or three different senior officers to get a full bird colonel on the phone at any hour of day or night to give two military police officers on a launch facility permission to leave because they were guarding the site because an alarm didn't work. Part of the alarm system was malfunctioning, we'll say, for whatever reason. And so we have to guard it with live humans. At least we did at the time. Two live humans are on guard, awake in the middle of the night, 40 below zero in a, in a camper truck. And to release them once the alarm is fixed required a full bird colonel on a conference call with like five, six, seven people. because we didn't trust each other, because we didn't train well, frankly, and because every time someone made a mistake, we didn't talk about it. We tried to hide it. And then when the mistake came out, we got pissed off at each other and that person got publicly flogged figuratively. And then we continued to ignore how busted up our culture was until it blew up in our faces in 2014. So decision-making at the lowest possible level was key, but you cannot prepare someone to make decisions in a situation they've never seen before unless you are ready to push them really, really hard in training. And this was something that, you know, there was a constant debate and I, to this day, will not maintain that I am right. I, I will simply justify why I thought the way I thought and I, st and I still, made plenty of mistakes doing this. But the one thing that I knew was I cannot predict what life is gonna throw at you when you're on alert. So the, so the most that I can do now is to teach you how to think through a complicated problem. If I give you the same scenario month after month, year after year, it will not prepare you and it will not make you any more capable or any more lethal. But if I can teach you how to reason through a complicated problem, in particular, one that doesn't have a good answer, right? All the answers suck. Then I'm more confident that you will be ready when the problem is a hundred times as heinous as the one I invented. And that's what you and your crew partner have in front of you on alert next week, next month, next year. That's why we did what we did. Now, I can't speak for missileers now. I don't know what training is like now. I've been out of the field uh, several years now. My last alert was in March, 2017. So I am one of those old missileers who can rail on and whose opinions matter to a point, but ultimately I am not one of the people in the field. And that's important for, for, all, for all of you to know and for me to remember constantly. But the thing that I've been thinking about the last few months, right, as I spent a lot of time and energy personally trying to figure out how to make our crew members as lethal as humanly possible, was I never wanted any of them to exercise it. I never wanted any of them to have to. If we were called upon, we were absolutely ready. I believe that. And, and there are data points to suggest that even after I left, things that had gone wrong in the field that the crew members had to deal with, that I do not think the crew members of my generation at the very beginning would have even been allowed to deal with. We wouldn't have even been given the rope needed to make that decision. We wouldn't have been given the slack. 
So there's certainly data to support how much better and how much stronger crew members got over time. And not because of me, but because we changed our ways. But I never wanted them to have to use those skills in combat. And I don't know that anybody did because we knew what that meant. Even one nuclear weapon in combat changes the game irreparably. To launch one ICBM from anywhere to anywhere changes everyone's decision calculus permanently, I think. Since I have left the ICBM field and since I have left the Air Force, I've asked myself, I've started to think about what are the situations where I think it's justifiable to use a nuclear weapon? And this is a question that Cole Smith tries to address in his editorial and is going to continue to address in his future work, I think. Is there ever a situation where it's justifiable to use a nuclear weapon? And, and herein, I think, lies the conundrum. What, what I, I don't want to put words into his mouth, certainly without him, certainly not without him here talking with me right now. But what I think Cole Smith might say, and what I think a lot of people might say is, certainly what the Global Zero organization would say is, absolutely not. There is no scenario that would justify use of a nuclear weapon because of how destructive and how long-term the, the damage is to a population subject to a nuclear strike. So then the question is, well, what if we have a nuclear weapon used against us, right? And it's, and it's easy to say, well, of course, a response in kind is justifiable. But if that weapon is going to detonate already and the damage is already done, is it justifiable for us to do the exact same thing, simply to kill as many of their people as they've killed of ours? I don't know. I want to say no, but I don't know. So I think the, the crux of it, the core of it is to do a job like that and, and to do many, many other jobs in the military and, and probably many other jobs across all sorts of industries probably. And, and really, to live as a human being because there's situations not related to warfare whatsoever where this applies. But in this context, you have to be able to hold two positions at once. And that's where I take issue with critiques of say Cole Smith's editorial or critiques I may now receive to the assertion that I think you have to do everything possible to make your crew members, your missile force, your bomber force, your submarine force as lethal, as capable, as humanly possible, ready for anything. As smart as they can be, as knowledgeable as they can be, as confident as they can be, as well supported and well funded and well resourced as they can be, while at the same time, the same time doing everything you possibly can to create a world in which all of that effort, all of the weapons, and all of the situations in which we think the weapons are good for become obsolete. Why is it not a given that we can do everything we can, that we can do everything we can, that we will continue to maintain the best capability we can while at the same time working for global zero. Now I, now I know what some of you are gonna start thinking, or I, I think I know, global zero is unrealistic, it's not possible. Vladimir Putin certainly won't give up his weapons. Kim Jong-un, 
won't give up his weapon or, or, or handful of weapons, regardless of how operable they are. The Indians and the Pakistanis will never stop pointing weapons at each other, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, on and on and on. Stop being a, a, a lunatic dove or whatever you want to call it, a peacenik or whatever the pejorative is you want to choose. I, I don't know if Global Zero is realistic. Uh, certainly not in the next five years, probably not in the next 10 years. Cole Smith argues that it's not about whether it can happen this year or next year or in the next five years. And in fact, he acknowledges it can't. What's important is having the conversation about what it will take to get there, even if it takes 30 or 40 or 50 years. And I am really interested in that line of thinking. What would it take? What would it take for us to rid the world of nuclear weapons? And is that a good idea? Because I don't know if it's a good idea. So if you take a step back into the time machine again and think about the world in 1945, when the Third Reich falls, the Japanese fall after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right? The Axis powers surrender, the war ends. Uh, we partition Germany. The Berlin Airlift in 1948 is, by some accounts, the unofficial start to the Cold War. The Cold War heats up. Stalin dies in 53. Ultimately, there are other accounts that would suggest the Cold War really doesn't start in earnest until 1961 and the construction of the Berlin Wall. It doesn't really matter when you think the Cold War starts, right? The individual date or whatever doesn't, doesn't particularly matter for this conversation. But what, what matters is What matters is we, we built an entire infrastructure around a set of assumptions. And those assumptions changed in 89, 90, 91. The assumptions have changed again. Um, that uh, I lost my train of thought, I'm sorry, but now I know where I was going. And so I was just making up words to try to buy time, which is ridiculous because I could have just paused the recording. Let me back up. Doesn't matter when you think the Cold War started, but think about the time between 48, 49, 50, slash 61, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I can't, that's not really fair either. That's not really fair. Tirade's probably already screaming back at me as he's listening to this. Let's call it 1948. That's probably critical. 1948, Berlin airlift, unofficial start to the Cold War. Because 1950 does matter. 1950 is the start of Korea. 50 to 53, we go into Korea. 61, Berlin Wall. 62, Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, and then in this, in the, by that point, we have advisors in Vietnam. I think 63, 64, 65, Vietnam heats up. LBJ is the president in 63. LBJ becomes known for Vietnam and the Civil Rights Act, don't forget about that. And then LBJ doesn't seek re-election after his first full term, and then we get to Nixon, and then on history goes. One of the key arguments in favor of nuclear weapons draws upon the history between, let's say 1945, the end of World War II, and today, arguably, or let's say February 24th, 2022, in the period between those two dates, we did not suffer a great power war on the earth. And I am one of the people who made this argument. I've made this argument with others. I had the argument presented to me. I've engaged with this argument. So I'm, I'm not calling myself somehow innocent of this line of thinking. That's not the point. The, the argument goes that the short version, the short, short version goes, nuclear weapons are what prevents the Third World War from happening because it increases the barrier to entry 
or it, I shouldn't say the barrier to entry. In some ways it can lower the barrier to entry, but what it does is it increases the cost of going to war for those great powers, those so-called great powers, right? So for the, for the Russians, for the Chinese, for the British, for the Americans, for the French, for the Indians and the Pakistanis, although they're in, in kind of a different scenario, they're in a microcosm scenario of their own, but say for the Americans, the Russians, the British, the French, the Germans as part of NATO, for the countries that were locked in combat for World War II, to go to war as the theory went, would, would invite escalation because of everything that was at stake, ideologically, politically, and that escalation would invariably lead to a nuclear exchange, which would lead to multiple strategic weapons in play, which would lead to Armageddon. And so what mutually assured destruction gave us was a tenuous peace that protected the world at large from a great power war, notwithstanding all of the, all of the proxy wars that still kill tens of thousands of people. And, and I don't add that point at the end to be flippant about it, but as I think about it, losing 50,000 in Vietnam for anybody who lost a friend, family member in Vietnam, for anyone who fought in Vietnam, was, in, was involved in Vietnam, who protested against Vietnam, the idea that nuclear weapons prevented warfare or somehow protected the world, I don't know, I don't know how strong that argument is to someone like that. I don't know if that's convincing, actually. Nuclear weapons did not prevent, what, what nuclear weapons created, arguably, from that perspective, is it lowered the barrier to entry to enter into proxy conflicts, right? The Soviet Union and the United States, the Comintern and Western capitalism fought each other constantly. We just didn't do it with nukes and we just didn't do it in the open, right? We fought by extension in all these places. We fought against the expansion of communism in Korea, in Vietnam, in Africa, in the Caribbean, Bay of Pigs was an anti-communist operation that went horribly wrong. The Cuban Missile Crisis was one of the few episodes that was direct Soviet on United States. But of course, we turned the island nation of Cuba into a hot zone that could by itself trigger the Third World War. So I don't know. And I'm not going to be able to solve that tonight, certainly. But think about it. Have nuclear weapons kept the world on balance, on the whole, safer or not? What would the world have looked like if either we hadn't used atomic weapons over Japan or if we hadn't invented them at all? Or let's say we had somehow, we had used them, the Russians, the Soviet Union had not successfully detonated one. And, and we somehow ended the program. I mean, what would the world, excuse me, have looked like without nuclear weapons? I honestly think it's a useful thought experiment. Because my next question is, now that we are seeing what is happening, now people are talking about, there, there, are, there are analysts inside and outside of the US government that believe the Russians will not stop with Ukraine. The Russians invaded Ukraine with almost 200,000 troops arrayed around the country on the, the Russian-Ukrainian border and the Belarusian-Ukrainian border. Now, the news today tells us that Ukrainian forces are starting to retake areas outside Kyiv, or Kiev, depending on how you say it. And I, and I don't I think it is Kyiv if you were to ask a Ukrainian, but I don't know. But regardless, Ukrainian forces are retaking uh, territory around the capital city, but the east and southeastern portions, Mariupol, for instance, Kharkiv, are still under siege by the Russians. So the thought is the Russians are massing their troops uh, to the east and to the southeast and on Crimea 
to launch uh, a heavier assault since they couldn't make any headway around the capital. Re regardless, for the analysts that think that the Russians won't stop, the next territory is NATO territory. Poland, Moldova, the Baltics. Putin felt threatened by NATO expansion for the last two decades. He has said as much. So regardless of whether you take him at face value or not, consider where he stands right now. If he succeeds in Ukraine, will he stop or not? And that's a, that's a rhetorical question you can think about for yourself. I've gone back and forth and I have my own thoughts on it. But, but if we agree, let's say, that he will not stop, then that means a few things. One, ultimately, our deterrence posture failed. One, two, if the Russians attack a NATO ally, an attack on one is an attack on all for Article 5. The United States, as the biggest NATO ally, now is possibly at war with the Russians, which is precisely, I thought, one of the scenarios these weapons were designed to avoid indefinitely. So to be realistic, nuclear weapons aren't going anywhere anytime soon, but should they go at some point in the future? Should we start talking about now what it would take what conditions could we set? What conditions would be would be acceptable to us that would lead us to disarm or to shut down one of the legs of the triad? I'm gonna get I'm gonna get another set of screams from another subset of the community, probably. I'm not arguing to do it right now. I'm not even arguing for unilateral disarmament of any portion. Certainly not all of it, but what would it take? What are the conditions? You, I think you have to at least be able to say, what is it that you would want to see from the Russians, from Putin? Does Putin need to leave office? Does he need to die, right? Do we have to wait until this man is 95 years old and finally passes on and then maybe we're willing to consider it? Okay, that's at least... It's a baby step in having the conversation. It may not be productive, but it's, well, it's more productive perhaps than what the conversation is now. And I think even if we have the conversation, we still should be paying attention to what it's going to take to keep the weapon system capable and ready, which includes GBSD, which includes modernization programs. They are insanely expensive. They're as expensive as they are, arguably, because we spent so long neglecting them. So I, I would still toe the party line to the extent that modernization and funding these programs and investing in the systems because they must exist now is appropriate and necessary. But it must be the case and to be a mature democracy, I think this is critical. It must be the case that we can, on one side of the coin, say, we're going to continue to invest. We're going to continue to train. We're going to continue to make these people, these men and women, deployed underground all across the U.S., the best they possibly can be. While on the other side of the coin, say, we have got to find a way to get rid of these things worldwide. Because ultimately, no one wants to see a conflict with these weapons used. We have to be willing to maintain those two positions at once. We are capable of it. We maintain two positions all of the time. I don't like road trips, but I want to go see family members. And it doesn't make sense to fly. So we're going to drive. Well, I don't like road trips, but we got to drive. And I want to go see them. Just one of the many random arguments you have in a household, right? I love my kids, but when they wake up at two in the morning screaming or one of them 
the older one is crawling into bed at two in the morning just for the heck of it. It's annoying as fuck. Yeah, screws up our sleep cycle. It's a mess. I still love my kids, but stay in your own damn bed. Right? We, we do this all the time and we don't even think about it. We hold these two positions. Just because your kids annoy you doesn't mean you stop loving them. Just because your spouse doesn't cook very well doesn't mean you don't want them to, to make dinner every so often and take a turn, right? Just because, just because you hate road trips or you hate flying on airplanes doesn't mean you won't if push comes to shove and you need to or you want to because ultimately seeing your family matters more than your dislike of sitting in the car for eight or nine hours. Whatever, whatever the case is, we do this all the time. We have lost the ability to have mature conversations about important stuff like strategic military policy because we somehow can't extrapolate what we do as humans at the local level, at the familial level, at the individual level to the societal level. And so we try to simplify these conversations and then they come off as you know, the sound, boy, the sound bite talking point BS that we get on media. And then everybody gets pissed off and goes home and they don't engage because it is bullshit at that level. Of course it is. Well, if, if, you, if you think we should get rid of nuclear weapons, then clearly you don't want to fund GBST. No, that's actually not the case. It's both. I don't think we went into Iraq. If... Okay, let me back up because I don't want to equivocate on this. The way we went into Iraq, we botched it, right? Going into Iraq when we did, in fact, may have contributed directly to Osama bin Laden's escape across the Pakistan-Afghanistan border. That doesn't mean I'm anti-military. If you think back to, I think it was the 2010s, Right, there was this period where we somehow got this idea that if you were against Iraq, you were against the troops. And it was such garbage. It was such a load of horse shit. And I don't know who came up with it and I don't really care, but give me a fucking break, right? Like, and I think most regular people would also say, yeah, that seems stupid, right? Like, we, that seems dumb. Right? It's not like every soldier, sailor, airman, marine, coast guardsman, space guardian, et cetera, et cetera. Right? It's not like every service member is making this policy choice. In fact, most of them are not. They are at the mercy of generals and senior civilians. So like it or not, when we're told to go, we go. But you, as an informed citizen, as a voter, as a taxpayer, in fact, have the responsibility and the duty to say, this is bullshit bring them home. If anything, you could argue that being against the Iraq war, if you were or are or, or were, right, was a more pro-troop position than being for it. Think about the, the twisted logic you have to come up with to say, I am absolutely for the troops. I love our veterans. Deploy them so that they have a much higher risk of getting shot and killed. What the fuck is wrong with you? No, that doesn't make any sense, but that's what we do. That's what we do all the time. We simplify these arguments so they sound pithy on TV and then we look like morons and we stop engaging with each other because there's, it's not worth it, right? I mean, most people I know don't want to engage with the news. I've stopped watching the news and I used to be one of those news junkies because I thought that's how you stay informed. No, it's how you stay angry. And it works. If you want to stay angry and amped up all the time and stressed and anxiety-ridden, yeah, watch the news. All of them, any of them, doesn't matter. There's got to be a way to stay informed, but it's, it's tough because that's what we do with our media. That's why podcasting became so popular. So anytime someone says, yeah, our attention spans are so short, like seven seconds, I'm like, well... One of the most popular media personalities on earth is podcasts for like three to four hours, including video. So I don't think that's true. I think their attention span for your crap is probably seven seconds. 
maybe. Okay, anyway, we have to be willing to have a mature conversation about important stuff. Nuclear weapons and deterrence in the future of the world and the future of warfare is one of those things we should be able to talk about. And it should be a given that we're holding two positions at once. And you may not agree with me. I'm not saying you have to agree with me. I hold these two positions. I think we should be having a conversation about what it takes to get to, quote, global zero. However long that might take, what are the conditions? I think it's a fair question, and you should be able to answer it. What are the conditions? There has to be some world in which you can imagine us no longer needing these weapons. Otherwise, your hope is that we always stay in this constant state of low-frequency animosity, conflict, hatred for each other, whatever the case is, right? I don't think that's true. I don't know that anybody wants that. So there has to be some condition, some idealized state, however weird you think it sounds, however unrealistic, what is it? And then we can work our way back from that. But at the same time, we say, man, we need to figure out a way to unfuck the world so that we don't need to use these things. While we have them, while the world is messed up, while the Russians go shopping for other countries to invade, you bet your ass that we're going to keep every single one of these weapons that's on alert, targeted, turned on, and ready, and every crew member the best they possibly can be at employing them. Because that's what they do, and that's what we do, and that's what we have, that's the responsibility we've taken on by deploying these weapons. You don't deploy these things and then forget about them like we did for a couple of decades. You deploy these things and then you put heart and muscle behind them. Because if you don't, someone's going to fuck it up and then we're going to kill millions of people unnecessarily. It's one thing to kill millions of people in the course of a war because you're trying to end a war before it gets even worse. It's another entirely to make a dumb mistake because you're not paying attention and kill people. That's why we have to invest in the system and in the people, in the manpower, in the training, in the infrastructure, all of that. Even while we can readily admit these weapons are dangerous and they're a risk to the world, not because the systems aren't strong, not because a rogue president can do something stupid. The systems are strong, they're a risk because we humans are not really mature enough to have all the power we have. I mean, do you think? We can gene edit babies before they're born. I don't think we're ready for that, but we do it. We've done it. There's a moratorium on it, but somebody did it already, right? There's all these ethical questions unanswered that we're running headlong into and through. But as a, as, a, as a society, we're not really ready for it. That's what makes these weapons risky, I think. Not that they're on, quote, hair trigger alert, which is not true. The hair trigger thing is not really a thing. It was in the late, in 59, 60, right? I, I, I'm pretty sure you enabled Atlas D with a, with a flip of a switch. That's why there always had to be two people awake. Like back in the day, right? We just had to get these suckers on alert. They were liquid fueled. That shit was dangerous. Okay. Damascus in 1980 happened because liquid fuel is a pain in the ass. Okay. Got it. Minuteman is not dangerous to the public and it is not on hair trigger alert. But in the aggregate, at the macro level, Yes, of course, these weapons are dangerous, and it's a high-risk endeavor to continue maintaining them and, and deploying them because we as humans have not adequately wrestled with the questions, with the ethical questions and the philosophical questions behind them. I don't think we have. We certainly have the time to. Whether we're willing to or not is a different story. I hope you are. Certainly I am. I've been talking for long enough to demonstrate that. And I think that's where I'm going to end it. It is possible to have two positions at once. Humans are 
at their core, not rational. We've evolved a, a certain keen sense, a certain intuition, survival instincts, and the cerebral cortex, right? The uppermost layer of our brain that helps with higher level cognition, the executive functions, the things that make us human is but a tiny sliver of, of the rest of our brain. We are not rational machines. We are emotional creatures. As Matthew Ditson said a couple of episodes ago, right? We are not, um, and I'm gonna get the quote wrong. We are not rational beings that sometimes think, or excuse me, we are not thinking beings that sometimes have emotion. We are emotional beings that sometimes think. And I think in this second anyway, I think he is absolutely correct. I hope you have a fantastic week. I hope you've thought at least a little bit about what I'm talking about. Put some thought to it after you give this episode a listen. Um, if it got you going, if it got you thinking, if it gave you a question or two to ask a friend of yours, feel free to share the episode. And uh, I would love to hear your feedback. Find me on social media. You can email me. I would love to hear from you. Um, the last question is me in the basement, and I'm just trying to have an important conversation once a week. Um, coming to you in the next few weeks with uh, more interviews and more discussion on this topic and a few others that are near and dear to my heart. All right, we're gonna call it there. Have a great morning, afternoon, evening, whenever you're listening to this. Listening to this, reach out with your feedback, with your comments, with your questions. Take care, stay safe, and we will talk to you soon.